long-standing friction over trade between the U.S. and China has turned into a trade war of global proportions. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. last spoke with attorney William Perry, he delved into the many subtleties and complications surrounding trade between the U.S. and China, with a particular focus on anti-dumping actions by both countries. Three years later, the situation has only gotten worse. Now we're experiencing the early stages of a global trade war. Perry, now with the law firm of Harris Moore, returns to the podcast to explain how we got here and how the imposition of duties on a single imported item can have unintended consequences throughout the economy. What was done in one sector to protect a few hundred jobs might end up eliminating thousands more in another. We also talk about the fate of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement and whether the World Trade Organization is still relevant. Keep in mind that our discussion took place prior to the U.S. presidential election, so what Perry says about TPP might have to be revised. In any case, here is my conversation with William Perry. Bill Perry, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking to your audience. You are recently returned from a visit to China. Mm -hmm. What did you learn there? Well, I think that the most important thing I learned is that what was a U.S.-China trade war has now become a universal trade war. I believe in the next year, a huge uptick in unfair trade cases. There's two reasons for it. The first and most prominent reason is the U.S. presidential election, in which both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have become very, very protectionist. And that would indicate that no matter who gets elected, there will be more cases in 2017. But in talking to the Ministry of Commerce, Chinese companies, Chinese trade lawyers, it is also very important, uh, obvious, that the Chinese government is going to increase significantly the number of dumping and countervailing duty cases that they're going to bring against the United States and other countries. They just recently issued a preliminary determination in what was called distiller grains. It's basically a used in animal feed, but it's 1.6 billion of U.S. exports to China. They've le- levied a 33% dumping, rate, dumping duty on that, which will probably have a significant impact on those uh, the imports into China. There are also rumors now that the Chinese government may bring an anti-dumping and countervailing duty case targeting 15 billion in exports of U.S. soybeans to China. The Chinese have a public interest test, so if their industry is injured and it's in their public interest to bring a case, they'll do so. And especially in light of all the cases the United States brings against China, there's a real public interest in, in China to bring cases against the U.S., and they are doing so. But it was also, well, in China, learning that all these other countries are bringing cases, South Africa, India, Malaysia, Indonesia, Taiwan is suing China for steel. We created a Frankenstein through our U.S. dumping law, and now the whole world has adopted it. So you're saying this is happening now, or you expect these cases to start coming up after the election? 
Some of them are happening now. The Stiller Grains case has already happened. The case is ongoing. There are a number of cases ongoing against China and the U.S. now. They just initiated a new case on sugar from Brazil and Australia and a number of other countries. But the soybeans case is the one that's potentially in the future. There have been articles written about it. There's an article in the U.S. press about a potential dumping case against China on aluminum foil. So we're seeing a huge number of cases starting to rise up. So what is the political motivation here? Is there a sense of revenge on the part of China and other countries, as you say, motivated by our own policies on filing anti-dumping and countervailing duty suits against other countries? Are they just now turning the tables on us? Partly turning the tables, but it's not really revenge. It's the United States is the only country in the world, or one of the few countries in the world, that doesn't have a public interest test. So when petitions are filed at MOFCOM, they will often keep those petitions, not release them to the world, not initiate them, until they believe it's in their public interest to go forward and bring the case. Europe has a public interest test. Canada has a public interest test. Most other countries have a public interest test. We don't. We think it's a right to file a dumping and a countervailing duty case, and this is why this issue of retaliation comes up. People don't understand. So MOFCOM will hold those petitions until they believe there's a public interest in bringing those cases. A good example of this was when the solar cells case was brought against uh, China in the United States. Nobody realized that there was $2 billion of U.S.-produced polysilicon being exported to China. As you would expect, an anti-dumping and countervailing duty case was filed by Chinese polysilicon producers against U.S. producers. And polysilicon producers were being hurt by imports from the U.S. But MOFCOM held on to the petition and didn't initiate it until it became very clear that the uh, Commerce Department was going to go full force against uh, Chinese solar cells. By the way, that polysilicon case resulted in REC Silicon, which is the largest producer in the United States, deferring a $1 billion investment into Moses Lake, Washington, and where its factory is located, then closing the factory, and now it's setting up a joint venture in China. Bill, you've uh, mentioned a couple of times MOFCOM. You're referring to the Chinese Ministry of Commerce when you say that, are you not? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Tell me about this public interest thing, though. It seems very abstract. Other countries have this standard. What exactly are they looking for there when they declare that there is or is not a public interest at stake prior to their deciding to file such such motions? Well, it's not so much to file it in Europe and Canada. It's the public interest test really comes up at the end of the case whether there's a public, whether in Europe it's whether a majority of the European EC countries agree to go forward with the case. Why? Impact on downstream production is one. In the solar cells case, it was interesting. The United States, it's almost impossible to settle a dumping case in the U.S. It's very, very difficult to settle a case in the U.S. But in Europe, it's much more easy, and they have price undertakings. When the solar cells case was filed in Europe against China, it was targeting $20 billion in Chinese exports to Europe. It just happened that German Chancellor Angela Merkel was in Beijing when they filed the case, and she announced this is a case that should be settled. So there was tremendous pressure on the EC dumping authority to come up with a price undertaking agreement, which they did. I'll give you another example in the U.S. where I think it would make a huge difference. We have had, for almost 10 years, an anti-dumping order in place against uh, Chinese magnesium. It's a raw material input. I mean, there's over 130 anti-dumping and countervailing duty orders against China, but more than 80 of them are raw materials, 
chemicals, metals, and steel that go into downstream U.S. production. In the case of magnesium, what happened is they put the dumping order in place, and, and this is to protect 200 to 400 workers in Utah. The downstream producers were magnesium die casters, and basically the entire magnesium die casting industry shut down with the loss of thousands of jobs. As a result of this order on magnesium from China, I've been told that the entire lightweight auto parts production has moved to Canada from the U.S. Now, in that case, if there was a public interest guest and standing was given to downstream producers, it would be their right to come in and protest either at Commerce or the International Trade Commission and say, look, you're, to put this, on, this order in place to protect a few workers in Utah, you've lost tens of thousands of jobs in the downstream market. It is not in the public interest of the United States to keep this order in place. But there is no public interest test in the U.S. Last time we spoke about three years ago, we got into the weeds a little bit about the criteria that the U.S. deploys in order to determine whether China actually is dumping. You said at the time that the U.S. refused to use actual pricing because it did not consider China to be a market economy, but that by November of 2016, it was going to classify China as a market economy for that purpose. Is that happening? No. The specific date is December 11, 2016. And the reason is China entered into the WTO agreement on December 11, 2001. And pursuant to that agreement, China was to remain a non-market economy for 15 years. Basically, what commerce is saying is we're not going to change anything. And in the light of this political climate, nothing's going to be done. The issue is in front of the European Anti-Dumping Authority, and they're indicating a little bit more willingness to look at this issue. And the parliament in Europe has come out against making China a market economy country, but the head of the European Anti-Dumping Authority says that we're quote-unquote studying it. So, I mean, if Europe were to basically make China a market economy, which is highly unlikely, or at least maybe relax the criteria a little, that might have an effect on the U.S. But right now, there's no way anything's going to change on December 11, 2016. What if China were to be declared a market economy? How would that change the, the criteria? How would that change U.S. conclusions over whether China was indeed dumping product in this country? Well, it would make a difference in the sense um, uh, Hillary Clinton has come out and said that, quote-unquote, making China a market economy would, quote-unquote, defang the U.S. anti-dumping law. That's absolutely incorrect. But what happened is that basically commerce would have to use actual prices and costs in China. I mean, they could, and they have done so in prior, in even market economy cases, they find a cost or price truly distorted. They could go and use some other cost if they wanted to. But generally, they have to use actual prices and costs in China. See, the anti-dumping law is not a penal statute. It's a remedial statute. It's supposed to remedy the unfair law act. So... If China were to become a market economy country, anti-dumping consultants such as myself and others could go in and work with the Chinese companies and run computer programs and make sure that the companies are not dumping. Now, I remember talking up on Capitol Hill to somebody about this, and the Congressional Trade Staff said they're gaming the system. They're not gaming the system. They're doing – when companies run computer programs to make sure they're not dumping, they're doing exactly what the dumping law tells them to do, which is to remedy the unfair act, to remove the unfair act, to figure out and make sure that they're not selling below prices in their home market or below their fully allocated cost of production. Now, when you run computer programs, that doesn't mean you necessarily come up with a zero, but it means you can reduce dumping margins significantly. I should mention that – when the United States refuses on December 11, 2016, to give China market economy status, 
I believe firmly, and most exports believe firmly, China will go to the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and argue that this is a violation of the WTO agreement with China. And many experts expect that in four or five years, the WTO will rule for China and against the United States. Did it take that long? It probably will. It takes a long time to get a decision out of the WTO. And then once you get it out of a, a panel, it will then has to go up to an appellate panel. So the United States will drag the whole thing all the way through before it will actually make a change. But I think the WTO will rule for China. The language is pretty clear, isn't it? Well, it is, but there's a little waffle language in there, and that's what the argument is going to be, that it's, there's a little bit of waffle language, but the point is that the provision specifically provides that this is going to you, – you're not supposed to – you're not going to use actual prices and costs in China, and that's supposed to stop as of December 11, 2016. Commerce doesn't care. Remember, I, I've actually talked to a congressman before here in Washington state, and he said, oh, the United States has won every case it's brought in the WTO. That's not true. But more importantly, the United States has lost many cases in the WTO. In fact, China brought a case against about 20 countervailing duty orders against China in the U.S. And the WTO overturned 20 countervailing duty orders. Now, does that mean that the U.S. Commerce Department immediately lifted the orders? Of course not. It made small changes in the countervailing duty rates as a result of the World Trade Organization's determination. Oh, by the way... When the World Trade Organization rules against China in cases like chicken, which is what blocked one billion in exports of U.S. chicken to China, the Chinese government had followed, mirror followed the Commerce Department and made small changes to their dumping and countervailing duty rates in response to the WTO determination. Of course, the United States is outraged, but the Chinese are just doing what the Commerce Department does. It leads me to wonder whether the WTO is still relevant, is still powerful, is still effective. What do you think? I think it's very effective in some ways. What happens is if you go all the way in a, in a panel proceeding and finally the WTO rules against the United States or rules against another country and the U.S. refuses to change its law or do anything, then the countries have a right to retaliation. And that means they can, in one of the most famous cases was what they called the Byrd Amendment. It was passed by Robert Byrd and attached to the agricultural bill in the early 2000s. And it provided that U.S. domestic industries that brought dumping cases and countervailing duty cases could get the duties that are actually collected by the Treasury Department. Well, the problem is under the WTO anti-dumping agreement, there's only one remedy for a dumping and countervailing duty case, and that's duties. It's not that you get the, you, the industry, get the money back. And so Japan and maybe about Canada, many countries lined up to file a case in the WTO against the United States. The U.S. with the WTO ruled in favor of all the other countries and against the United States. What happened was the United States kept delaying, 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 delaying. But finally, we got down to retaliation. And Japan, Canada, many other countries are drawing up retaliation lists okay, we've been wiped out to the tune of a billion dollars, Japan was saying, because of this Byrd Amendment. We've got a, the right to take a billion dollars and raise tariffs on your exports to U.S. exports coming into Japan or U.S. exports coming into Canada. We can come up with these numbers of how much you've hurt us. When that happened, all of a sudden the U.S. Congress realized, uh-oh, we're in trouble, we have to do something. And they removed the Byrd Amendment, and it was on a 51 to 50 vote in the U.S. Senate with Vice President Cheney breaking the tie. 
but they only did it because of enormous pressure from the WTO in the United States and through the WTO and pressure by all these countries to the U.S. to change the law, and they finally did. So now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, given the fact that it appears to be political poison right now, do you think it has a chance? Read the newsletter I just sent you, and I'm going to put it up in my blog today. I think that there is a chance. There's two articles that came out. One, and this just happened in September. John Kasich, who, as you knew, know, is very much a fair trade guy, and someone I would almost believe is a little bit protectionist, I means governor of Ohio. He has come out in favor of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, along with a number of other politicians, and they had a meeting with President Obama in the White House. Remember, Governor John Kasich is a Republican, and the whole issue was trying to pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership during the lame duck. Now, I've said on my blog and my newsletter that if Hillary Clinton is elected, I think there's a substantial chance the Trans-Pacific Partnership will be passed in the lame duck. And with a wink and a nod from Hillary, and because she wants, to, she owes to Obama, and Obama wants really very much wants to pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it could very well pass. There's also an article I quote from Samuelson, and Samuelson is the great, the well-known economist, and he quotes Chairman Brady, and Brady is chairman of the House Ways and Means, which is the very powerful committee where the trade Trans-Pacific Partnership goes through. Brady has said. Yes, it could come up in the lime duck, and yes, it could be passed. But there are issues. And one of the real issues is that the Republicans will not carry Obama's water for him. And when it was the issue of trade promotion authority, which led to the TPP passage last summer, a number of Democrats had to walk up and agree to vote in favor of the bill, of the trade bill. And if they don't, because there are many Democrats, when you look at things from a political point of view, the Democrats are much more protectionist than the Republicans. The reason is the unions. The union supports the Democratic Party. And because of that, and they provide a lot of money and a lot of support, and the union have come out and said, we want to kill the rotten. This is Trumpka from AFL-CIO. If you vote for the TPA, now it'll probably be the TPP, we, the union, will not support you, Democratic congressman or Democratic senator, and we'll run somebody against you in the primary. And so that's obvious, tremendous political weapon aimed at the Democratic congressman or senator. But what Brady is saying is, look, uh, we're not going to do this on our own. We Republicans aren't going to go out on a limb. You've got to get some Democrats lined up to support this thing to push this thing through. So the answer is possibly it could go through. I also know personally uh, Congressman Dave Reichert, who is chairman of the Subcommittee on Trade and House Ways and Means. And he is very, very much in favor of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and sees it's, it's really his duty. He's the first congressman from Washington State to head up the Subcommittee on Trade. And he believes it's his duty to push this thing through because it's so important for Washington State. Washington State, our exports are a huge issue for us. The port here is very important. If you're from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, it's not so much an issue, and uh, they don't get as much out of the exports as Washington State do, so they're much more protectionist there. I mean, this is one of the biggest problems facing Senator Rob Portman, who's running in Ohio, because he used to be the United States trade representative, and many Democrats are pounding him on the trade issue. But it looks like he, he's ahead in the polls now, so he could keep his seat, which is very important. You know, I wonder, given the existence of several controversial portions within the TPP, such as the investor-state dispute settlement language, 
I wonder if fast track turns out to have been a mistake, the inability of Congress to kind of look at it in a more detailed way and, and take something and not take another thing. Now they're forced to vote up or down completely on it, and maybe that is hurting its chances for ratification. Well, that's part of it. I think that the other problem was, remember, that the TPA didn't come up until the Republicans won the Congress. Senator Harry Reid, who had the Democrats in the Senate, made it very clear he wasn't even bringing the TPA to the floor of the Senate. So he stalled for years. We're talking probably five, six years. Why that's so important is because TPA wasn't in place. It meant that the countries didn't come forward with their best offers. They were not going to do that until the United States put their TPA down. I truly believe that if Harry Reid had brought it up and TPA had passed four or five years earlier, that would have given Congress and the administration, they would have more flexibility then because they would have a better idea of watching over the shoulders of what the negotiations were. I can tell you, though, the deal the administration had with Congress is that any congressman or senator could go to the negotiations and watch the negotiations in person and kibitz on the side, which is what happens all the time. And they were also, I know, a lot of congressional staffers going to the negotiations of the TPP. So the Congress was involved, very much so. Now, the investor state thing is one of the issues. I mean, there are certain issues, investors, states, uh, pharmaceuticals was the rec- recognition of how long you get the keep your rights before it could go generic. That was a big one. Uh, it was biologics and so on. Tobacco is another one. So there are certain, really, another one which is really created by the, U- the U.S. government and the Treasury was the failure in the digital accords to include banking. And the bankers went crazy. And it turned out it was the U.S. government who decided not to include U.S. banking in. And now they put a memorandum that they're saying, yes, it should be included. One of the questions is whether there can be any renegotiations at all. And that Froman is saying no because there's so many countries. The United States Trade Representative Froman is saying no, there's not, not because there's so many countries involved. But you never know. There may be side deals. There may be something going on. I mean, there was a side deal on currency, which was and currency manipulation, which specifically required these countries to first start talking and negotiating about currency manipulation. And that was negotiated as part of the TPP because it was in the TPA legislation that basically the U.S. government had to do something about currency manipulation. So it was a side deal created with the um, Treasury Secretary. Right now, there's nothing in place to prevent countries from currency manipulation. But when now, with the side agreement in place, they will at least start negotiating and talking about this issue. Well, maybe we'll see some creative solutions down the pike somewhere. But in the meantime, this concept of a universal trade war is a little bit disturbing. And I hope to have you back on another show to talk more in detail about that, Bill Perry. But otherwise, I want to thank you so much once again for taking the time to elucidate this subject and uh, share some of your insights and what you learned on your recent trip to China. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with attorney William Perry of Harris Moore, talking about the unintended consequences of protectionism. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? 
email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.